Chapter 26 of Policy and Passion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Policy and Passion by Rosa Campbell Preed. Chapter 26 Barrington, a Rejected Suitor. During the interview which followed, and which was fraught with the witchery of repulsion and intoxication, Barrington promised that he would at once inform Mr. Longleat of what had taken place. Later in the day he called at the Treasury and asked if the Premier would favour him with a private interview. He was admitted. Mr. Longleat, absorbed in calculations, was seated before a large table which was strewn with official documents and flanked by pigeonholes stuffed with papers. He looked up as Barrington entered, curtly shook hands, and motioned him to a seat. In a few well-chosen words he told the result of his proposal to Honoria, and formally asked Mr. Longleat's consent to their engagement. The Premier rose, and stood with his back to the fireplace, and his thumbs thrust into the armholes of his waistcoat, as was his custom when he was obstinate or annoyed. "'Mr. Barrington,' said he, "'it is just as well that you and I should understand each other without any more to do.' "'Certainly.' replied Barrington in those well-bred neutral tones which were especially irritative to Mr. Longleat's temper. Your daughter has consented to become my wife. Of course I am anxious that you should approve of her choice. Longleat regarded him with a critical look of dislike, and restraining by an effort any violent expression of his feelings, said, You are an Englishman, a man of good family, a younger son with wealthy relations. I have some little knowledge of your class and I tell you frankly that I detest it. I am sorry for that, Mr. Longleat, replied Barrington, but it is hardly fair that a man should be held responsible for the position of his parents. You think no small beer of yourself, continued Longleat, especially where women are concerned. Now, will you be good enough to tell me what your income is? Barrington explained that his brother made him an allowance of a hundred and fifty pounds per annum, the capital equivalent to which he would receive when he had decided to invest in Australia. "'A matter of four thousand pounds, putting it roughly at four per cent,' said Mr. Longleat. "'Have you expectations of further property?' "'None that I am aware of,' answered Barrington. "'I may mention that after my brother and his two sons, I am heir to the family title and estate, but my succession is a very remote contingency.' "'Pshaw!' exclaimed Longleat. You are doubtless aware that when my daughter is twenty-one, she will, independently of me, be a rich woman. This fact has probably entered into your calculation. Now, setting aside everything else, is it likely that I shall consent to her marriage with a needy sprig of nobility? Perhaps you imagine you are doing her an honour? On the contrary, I am honoured by Miss Longleat's preference. I hope that you acquit me of mercenary motives. Damn it! cried Mr. Longleat furiously. I am not going to pay my daughter the ill compliment of supposing that you are only seeking her for her money. Don't I know that she is fit to be a duchess, if there is any glory in that? You are a conceited cuss, and you have contrived to establish an abominable influence over her. She has never been the same since you gained her ear. She has looked queer and out of sorts, and has held herself aloof from me. Who is to blame for that, if it is not you? Am I likely to regard you with any more favor for coming between my daughter and me? Are you certain that it is I who have come between you and your daughter? asked Barrington in a meaning tone. Do you want to insult me? 
cried Longleat, growing very red. I say that it is you who have poisoned her mind. I know all about you. You were kicked out of the guards. You have got into rows about women. You have squandered your fortune and have come to Australia to be whitewashed. You brag about your relations in England and trade upon your good looks. If you think for a moment that you are going to marry my daughter, you are very much mistaken. Mr. Longleat, said Barrington, if any man but you had insulted me, he would have had to answer for it. I suppose that Miss Longleat will have a voice in the matter. What you say is perfectly untrue. I will put you in the way of obtaining any information that you may desire as to my former life and my objects in coming out to Australia. Any reasonable objection that you may urge I will answer frankly. There is nothing more to be said, returned Longleat doggedly. I have other views for my daughter. I think that before dismissing me in this summary fashion, you owe me the courtesy of an explanation. I have other views for my daughter, repeated Longleat. It is not my intention that she shall marry an Englishman. I have no objection to her seeing all that is to be seen in Europe. She shall have everything that money can give her. That's what I've worked for. But she shall marry as I have marked out. She is an Australian, and her money belongs to Australia. I have educated her to hold her head among the highest in the colonies, and here she shall stop, and her money too. I am not going to have her play second fiddle and be looked down upon because her father was a bullock-driver. Out here I am Longleat of Coralbin, Premier of Leckhart's Land, and she is my daughter. That is the top of the tree to us. Her husband shall be an Australian who will take my name and carry on my work, so that when I am dead and gone, Longleat's policy shall still be known the length and breadth of the land. The Premier's daughter, the Premier's wife, that's what I mean her to be, and nothing else. You must be aware, Mr. Longleat, said Barrington, that your objections are mere prejudices. Your strong affection for your daughter will surely never suffer them to override her happiness. I am willing to agree to any stipulation that you may make as to her residence in Australia. Ay, ay, I have no doubt, replied the Premier sarcastically. But that has nothing to do with the matter. I object to you personally. I have never cottoned to you from the moment I set eyes upon you. If I had not been a besotted fool, I should have forbidden you my house long ago. I caution you now not to set foot within my doors, or you'll be kicked out of them. I don't understand your fine English manners, but it seems to me that a man has a right to behave as he pleases inside his own walls, and I beg you'll keep out of mine. I distinctly decline to entertain your proposal. I regret your determination, said Barrington with difficulty keeping his temper. But till Miss Longleat herself dismisses me, I shall consider myself engaged to her. Of course, I shall not enter your house against your wishes. You may consider yourself what you please, said Longleat. It is my business to prevent my daughter from making a fool of herself. Keep your mind easy, Mr. Barrington. She will never go again me. We shall see, said Barrington. Very well. And, as we have both made our intentions clear, and I have a good deal of public business on hand, you'll excuse me if I say good afternoon. The Premier seated himself again at his table and touched the gong to summon his clerk. Barrington took up his hat and withdrew, 
speculating as he left the treasury what would be the immediate result of the interview. Honoria had told him the family plans for the day. He knew that she was to drive with Lady Georgina Augmering in the afternoon, that there was a meeting of the executive, that the premier was to attend a political banquet, and that she had asked some gentlemen to dine at the Bunyas. He himself had been one of those invited, but it was now of course impossible for him to be present. Upon the whole, he did not think it probable that Mr. Longleat would have an opportunity of speaking to his daughter that day, and resolved to write to her in such terms that her promise would be clinched before there was any chance of its being broken. But Barrington hardly estimated the extent of his power or the obstinacy of Honoria's disposition. Susceptible as she was to emotional influences, she had a strong contempt for legitimate authority, and was as iron when bidden to yield a jot of her supremacy. Thus it needed but the breath of opposition to fan her fascination for Barrington into a violent flame. Longleat felt ill at ease after his dismissal of Barrington. At half-past three the executive council met, and even the governor rallied him upon his air of heavy abstraction. When it was over, instead of retiring to his office or crossing the river to see Mrs. Valency, as was his wont, he betook himself to his own home, where he found Mrs. Ferris and his daughter in close conversation. In truth, they had been talking about Barrington's visit and its consequences. The old lady was a fervent admirer of the Englishman, and her warm praise stimulated the confidence which, in her womanlike longing for sympathy, it was impossible for Honoria to withhold. They both started when the premier entered. He looked flushed, but resolute. Honoria, he said, can you come with me into the study? I want to speak to you. Lady Georgina will call for me in a quarter of an hour, replied Honoria coldly. Come, he said imperiously and she followed him to the back room looking out upon the lawn, filled with Hansard's parliamentary papers and standard tomes, where the premier spent long hours in studying political precedents and the principles of representative government, in battling, too, with the difficulties of grammar and classic authors, in lonely brooding and painful excitement. He went up to the fireplace where a log was burning and stood with his back to the flame. His daughter faced him. Oni he said with great gentleness, taking her hands. My gal, you must give it up. She looked at him full with her clear eyes, while her lips tightened ever so slightly, but she made no answer. You must give it up, repeated Longleat. He is not the kind for you. A needy swell who has shaved too close to the wind at home, and who is caught by your pretty face in the chink of your money. A man who'll think that he is doing you an honour, maybe, by marrying you will love you for a year, then turn from you, and perhaps he'll use you. Oh, I know his breed. He is a gentleman, said Honoria proudly. What has that to do with it? It's not. He paused and grew redder. It had been on his lips to say, Is not Connie Valency's husband a gentleman? And perhaps Honoria guessed at the unfinished sentence, for she stiffened and stood erect. He went on hurriedly, blurting out his sentences. Take my word for it. I know the meanness, the cruelty of the rights, how they look upon all innocent creatures, not noble like themselves, as born only for the gratification of their cowardly pleasures. You are not the woman to be despised, perhaps affronted. I had rather know you were dead outright than see you suffer the lingering torture that a marriage with that man would be to you. Have I not seen something of these d 
blank, aristocrats. They think that God created the world and all the live things on it for their profit and pleasure. They believe in their sacred prerogative to make laws and crush the people. They've got a kind of hard, supercilious pride that holds them together and gives them the notion that outside their own order all mankind is so much dirt. Arrogance and cruelty are bred in their bones and flesh. They are the curse of England. It is only in a new country like this where the forest is free and God is for each and all that there is any liberty for man or beast. Do you imagine that you, who have been worshipped like a queen, could endure to eat humble pie before a set of simpering ladies who would merely tolerate you for your riches or more likely flout you because your father had been a bullock driver? You are an Australian. Your money is Australian. Never forget that it came from old Jem Baggett, a ticket-of-leave man, and your father's pal in the old days when he drove his team to Kuya and grudged himself a pipe or a nobbler that he might lay by to make a lady of you. Papa, said Honoria, her face fearlessly turned towards him. I understand your feelings, but I cannot sympathize with them. My money may be Australian, but I am not. I have not an ounce of genuine Australian blood in my veins. I cannot get up an enthusiasm about wool and tallow, frozen meat, intercolonial jealousy, and all that can't which people talk about this glorious country of the future, which seems to me like the boasting of a silly child who fancies that the great world is interested in its capers. I care only for my native land, because it is the scene of my life. I would change it if I could. I care only for politics, because they are your triumph or defeat. All my yearnings are after England and English people. Like must to like. Longleat dropped her hands helplessly. Like must to like, he repeated. You are wanting me to understand that the bond of flesh is all that binds us together. Our minds don't march to the same tune. You are ready to pick a quarrel with fate for making you the daughter of an Australian bullock driver instead of the child of an English nobleman, as well one as the other. You are not content to take your life as God gave it you and be thankful. What have my love and my work done for you except to drive you from me? There's nothing to hold us to each other except the fact that it is I who begot you and not another. When your own fortune comes to you, Jem Baggett's money, you'll be independent of your father. Father, said Honoria, how hard you are, how cruel. The words were passionate, but the tone was merely incisive. What have I done that you should speak to me so? I have never cared about the money that was left me. I have never wanted it or thought of being independent of you. I have wished to be a dutiful daughter, but there are some matters which a girl must decide for herself. I have never known exactly what you wanted me to be. You seemed always pleased with me. It is only lately that you have been dissatisfied. Is it my fault that I have feelings and longings and thoughts of life different from yours? No, it is not your fault, Honey, said Longleat quietly. You have soared above me, and you are not to be blamed for using your wings. I shouldn't have let them grow. I should have kept you down. That is what I ought to have done, and then you would not have despised me. Papa, Honoria went on, speaking very gently, and not realizing how every word that she uttered stabbed him. 
I do not wish you to interpret my words in such a manner that you can suspect me of meaning any disrespect to you. What I want to convey to you is this, that you are not able to understand Mr. Barrington. You have been differently reared. You have prejudices against the class to which he belongs. All people cannot be alike. No, there are camels and racehorses. There are barn-door fowls and larks, said Longleat with unconscious irony. You and Mr. Barrington look at life from opposite points of view. You do not understand his way of thinking, his world, his education, and you have taken a dislike to him. You are unjust to him in your heart. As for me, I know that he loves me. It is not my money that he wants, and if it were, I would give it to him freely. I must be generous. I must bestow all or nothing. I have allowed him to become my master, and I will glory in being his slave. I will shut my mind to any doubts. I have promised, and I will never be untrue to my word. You have not understood me. I have not understood myself. I am stronger and weaker than I thought. I was miserable. You might have seen it. You might have saved. I mean, you might have prevented my becoming engaged to him. Now that I have given myself up, I am miserable no longer. As Honoria stood, with her head thrown back, her eyes dilated and determination expressed in every line of her face, Longleat felt an intense admiration for her beauty, nay, even for her resolution. Pride and love stirred his heart. She was his own. Rough and unrefined though he might be, it was his privilege to call this superb creature his child. She was bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. Even though a duke might wed her, she would be none the less his daughter, the crown of his Australian career. Honoria, he said with a kind of wistful tenderness, I had meant that you should be the queen of Leckhart's land, first lady in the country that has bred you, and that has made a great man of your father. I thought you would have married Dyson Maddox. It was for that I got him into the ministry, more than because he has a smart head upon his shoulders. I was waiting, waiting. I had a notion of carrying my railway. Longleat's railway it should have been, all Australia over, and Longleat's loan. Then I'd have gone to England, and they'd have knighted me. And I'd have worked things gradually so that Dyson should have taken my place. There's pluck and go in him. He'd make a good premier. That was my notion. And now I'm not going to let it lie and see you throw yourself away upon that cursed Englishman. My gal, it's the first time that I've ever asked you to give up anything your heart was set on. It's the first time in all your life that I have ever wanted to go again you. My gal, for the sake of love I've got for you, and the pride, and for being my only one that I've worked to make a lady of, for Janie, she doesn't count. She'll never be the same as you. For my sake, give it up, honey. I beg you to give it up. Honoria was deeply moved. Father, she said suddenly and sharply, you have asked me to give up something I care for. Will you give up something in your turn? That is fair. Will you promise not to go and see Mrs. Valency any more, or let people have occasion to couple your name with hers disgracefully? Hush, said Longheat. It is not for you to speak about this to me. It is for me to speak, cried Honoria, 
Do I not hear the remarks that are made? Do I not know the sort of woman she is? Here Longleat started guiltily. Am I not your daughter? Is not your honour mine? Father, will you give her up, for my sake and for your own? No, said Longleat doggedly. Things are come to a pretty pass if a daughter is to order her father's likings. You have got naught to do with the matter. I love you as my life, but you're apart. I have never wished you to be mixed up with Connie Valency. I'm a man, and being a man I've a right to choose my own way of going. It is your place to obey. I have left you to free a rein. It is time you felt a touch of the bit. Mrs. Valency is my friend, and I will not desert her at your bidding. Then, father, replied Honoria loftily, you cannot blame me if I refuse to desert the man I love at yours. You had better allow me to marry Mr. Barrington. There can be no use in opposing me, and it is time that I made a home for myself. You want to leave me to leave your home? he said in a bewildered manner, as though her words were a painful revelation. All women marry in the course of time and have homes of their own, said Honoria more gently, and I am not understood. It is natural that I should long for sympathy and love. Aye, said Longleat heavily. That's what we all of us, young and old, come to longing after. Sympathy and love. The clock on the mantel-shelf chimed the hour. Honoria moved towards the door. I must go. Lady Georgina will be here in a moment. I am sorry, Papa, but I am resolved. I will not give up Mr. Barrington. Stay, said Longleat. I have forbidden him the house. I have told him that if he ever shows his face within my doors, I'll have him turned out. You said that, said Honoria, her eyes darkening and dilating with anger. I did, and by heaven I meant my words. Now give me your promise that you will neither see nor speak to him. I promise that I will do neither within these walls, said Honoria deliberately, but I will promise no more. Yes, I will give you my word that I will not marry him without your permission till I am twenty-one. Further than that, I will not be bound. The two stood looking at each other for several moments before she turned the handle of the door and left the room. The same spirit of defiance gleamed from the eyes of both, only that with Honoria emotion was strained to its utmost, and having yielded her faith into Barrington's keeping, the dominant thought was determination to cleave to him at all hazards. While in Longleat's breast dull fury against Barrington, revulsion after his excited outbreak of supplication, wounded love, disappointed pride, and passion for Mrs. Valency, bubbling up the stronger for having been momentarily stemmed, all contended for the mastery. His eyes were the first to droop. When the door had closed upon his daughter, he flung himself into a chair, and with a despairing gesture folded his arms upon the table before him, and buried his burly head upon them. "'God help me,' he muttered. "'What is a man to do when his own child turns again him?' Presently there was the sound of carriage wheels without, Half ashamed of his weakness, Longleat stole to the window, and from behind the Venetian shutter watched his daughter go forth and take her place beside the governor's wife. How beautiful she looked in her well-fitting dress and little black hat with its drooping feather! But, oh, how cold! How unresponsive to his keen yearning! 
he had fancied for a moment that she might return and say some tender words which should give him the comfort of feeling that they were not quite estranged. But no, she did not even look towards the study. Nevertheless, the thought may have found an echo in Honoria's breast, for as they were driving down Ferry Street, after having dawdled for some fifteen minutes at the library, she started up in the carriage and exclaimed, "'Oh, I must go home for a moment. I must see my father.' "'My dear,' said Lady Georgina Augmering, in cold condemnatory tones, dropping the eyeglass through which she had been attentively scanning the river, "'I don't think that you need trouble yourself about your father.' Look at him yonder in that ferry boat, crossing to Emu Point. End of chapter twenty six. Read by Celine Major.